always the youngest that gets left out. You know that. Um, before we jump into the scriptures this morning, I had a couple uh, just announcements for you that we want you to be aware of. Well, one announcement. The Everleys are here. Uh, Scott and Lucia Everly, who serve in Niger in Africa, uh, serving with teacher training and preparing Christians to be a part of educating the next generation there so that the gospel uh, spreads. They were in our first service. I don't think they're in here. They're with one of our Sunday school classes right now. So I want to encourage you, when the service wraps up, uh, they've got a table set up. We'll open the back, the dividing wall there, and you can pick up a prayer card and get to meet them. I would encourage you. The ministry they're doing is very important, and God's really using them. And so we want to encourage you to get to know the Everleys if you don't. And if you do, to hug them and tell them you're glad to see them, encourage them, and to pick up a prayer card so that you can support them in prayer. Uh, want to remind everybody there are Bibles at the end of the row. So if you don't have one with you, we encourage you to grab one of those paperbacks. And if you don't own a Bible, to take that home for you as a gift from us to you. Uh, today's a special day. It's Father's Day. And I want to tell you uh, the playbook most of the time for Father's Day and that we're not going to do it. We're called, we call an audible here because we don't really like that play. Here's what normally happens. On Mother's Day, uh, we have the ladies stand up and we applaud them and we tell them how special they are. And uh, how much we love them. And on Father's Day, the men come here and we fuss at them and kind of, you know, tell them to do a better job. Uh, And um, we're not going to do that this morning. Uh, What I want to do is recognize something. And you'll see this. We're going through the life of David this summer. David was an exceptional man in many ways, but really failed as a father. And one of the reasons for that is it's really hard. Uh, And we recognize, and I recognize, I've got five kids myself, that the, the task of leading your family providing for, protecting, instructing, and raising your children in the knowledge and instruction of the Lord. That's not an easy one. And there's not a lot of cultural forces that make that easier for us. And so uh, we really have to lean into the Word of God and lean in uh, to the Spirit of God for strength. And so I want to ask, dads, if you guys could stand up and we could say thank you to you and we could pray for you. So dads, would you stand up for us? All right. Amen. Man, I want to thank y'all for faithfully uh, striving to execute what God's called us to do. It is not easy. And I want to lift you up in prayer and ask God's strengthening and blessing over you and your families. Father God, I lift these men up to you. I thank you that you are at work in their lives leading them. Father, I thank you um, that while you have given us as men and fathers an exceptionally difficult calling, you have given us your spirit to strengthen us and your word to guide us. And you've given us brothers in Christ to encourage us. And so I pray for these men that you would strengthen them, that you would give them great joy as they lead and serve their families, and that they would be a blessing to their wives and children, that they would be a blessing to those around them, and that through them you would do great and mighty things as they invest in the lives of their children. We pray for your blessing over them in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Happy Father's Day. I want to encourage you to open your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 18. That's where we'll pick up where we left off last week. David had killed the giant. Inspired by that great victory, the armies of Israel rushed across the battlefield and routed the Philistine army. And with the cry of battle and the clang of swords and the victory at hand, we pan out and the screen fades to black. When the scene picks up today, it picks up in a different location. 
The armies of Israel have finished their campaign, campaign against the Philistines and they're on their way home. And as they go through each city on the way, the women would come out to greet them. And they would do that because they're receiving their sons and husbands back. You'll note that when we read it, the scripture is going to say the women receive them. Much like in World War II with America, how our troops in mass went off to war and then came back after victory and parades happened all over the place as people received home friends, brothers, husbands, fathers, and cousins back. The same events playing out here. And I want you to see how it goes in chapter 18, verse 6. As they were coming home, When David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. So as they come into the city, there's the impromptu ticker tape parade. And the women have composed a song. And to be fair, it's not a great song. It lacks a lot of lyrical content. But they're singing it anyway and with great joy. And as they come into the city, Saul leading the charge, David and Jonathan just behind him, the troops following, they sing the song. Saul has killed his thousands. And Saul goes, I kind of like this song. Let's see where this goes. Verse 2 follows. And David his ten thousands. I want you to see in verse 8, Saul's response to this reception. It says, and Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? So I want you to notice that this is a short-lived celebration of their victory over the Philistines. Because immediately upon entering the cities and being received as heroes, Saul is received as a hero, but with lesser esteem than David. Which is not entirely unreasonable when you think about the events that just transpired. For a period of time, day after day, the Philistine champion Goliath would stand before the armies of Israel, daring someone, taunting someone to come and to fight. And no one replied until David, who's maybe 15 or 16 at the moment, steps on the battlefield. So it's understandable that David, having been given this great victory by God, would be esteemed so highly by the people. And Saul takes offense at this. And I want to just note something that's important. It's a side note, but but very real. Is that Saul is the supreme leader of the people of Israel. And because of his need for self-aggrandizement, because of the size of his ego, he cannot enjoy the victory because someone else is receiving the credit. Anytime we can't enjoy something that God has been a part of using our leadership to accomplish because someone else is receiving more credit than us, there's a problem. Our egos are bigger than the task we set out to accomplish. And right away, you know the leadership's going to be bad. Saul doesn't just want success, he wants fame and credit. What we'll find as you go through the life of Saul is that he's a very insecure man who consistently needs to be propped up as other people stroke his ego, and he can't handle this. He's angry. Saul doesn't do anything about it for a while, and they go home. David actually continues to serve Saul. Saul continues to have fits of rage and depression and anxiety, paranoia, and David plays for him. You'll see in chapter 18, verse 10, 
the story pick up. After they've arrived home, settled in, it says the next day. A harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in hand and Saul hurled the spear for he thought I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. And Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. So I want you to to see what's happened here. Saul is angry and he's watching David with anxiety and jealousy as David serves him day by day. So David continues in the role of a humble servant before his king, even though he's anointed king. And Saul's jealousy and anger towards him grows until one day in a fit of rage, Saul takes his spear and he throws it at David and misses. It says that David evaded him twice. Which tells us something we need to know about David. He may not be the smartest guy you've ever met. Uh, You know, the old saying is that you throw a spear at me once, shame on you. You throw a spear at me twice, shame on me. Right, that's, that's how the saying goes, isn't it? This is what he does, right? So I, I don't know how things worked. It seems that in the palace that everyone knew that Saul had some kind of mental instability and that he would have fits of rage. And so you just kind of watch him when he's around the weaponry and, and you need to be on, on guard. And so people just tolerated Saul as he was. But Saul's anger and hatred towards David is growing so that he is continually against him. And so Saul does something. He's in a difficult spot. Because the scriptures tell us that David is a great hero amongst the people. The people love David. He's their champion. So Saul really can't touch him. Saul can't just kill him. He can't come up with some charges to levy against him that he might have some way to dispense of David. And so he he realizes what he needs to do. He says, I need to get him out of the palace. So I'm going to put him in charge of a group of fighting men. And I'm going to send them all over fighting our enemies. And maybe... Maybe one of them will kill him. And then he'll be a hero and and, and I won't be a part of it. And so uh, I'll have clean hands. And so he sends out David. The problem is that God is with David and everything David does, he's victorious. And this becomes a greater problem because every time David goes on a military campaign and comes back victorious, the love of the people for him grows and their respect for Saul diminishes because the king isn't leading the army. David is. Saul is at home in his palace while David is out fighting for their freedom and their safety, winning with the God's blessing upon him. So he sent out. Then Saul realizes something. His direct attempts to dispense of David don't work. So he does what his father taught him is if you first don't succeed, get sneaky. And so he comes up with a plan To get rid of David. In chapter 18 verse 17 you'll see Saul's plan begin to take place. It says, then Saul said to David, here is my elder daughter Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hands of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I 
And who are my relatives and my father's clan in Israel that I should be the son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel the Mahalite for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. And Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then, become Saul's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus so did David speak. Then Saul said, thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hands of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michal's daughter loved him, his daughter loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. So we need to see how this plays out. Saul knows he can't touch David because David is beloved. So he comes up with this idea. I'll offer him to my daughter to marry. McCall loves him. She wants to marry him. And this will be a great trap. Because I'm going to tell him he doesn't have to pay anything to me to take her as his wife. All he has to do is go kill a hundred men and bring back the proof. Saul's hopeful and believes that David won't return victorious from it. You can imagine that going into Philistine territory, if you're David and you've just killed Goliath, is a risky enterprise. And so he sends him out to do that. And I want you to just recognize the kind of man Saul is at this moment. When he thinks of his daughter, McCall, he doesn't think she's beautiful, sweet, loving. He says she'll be a snare for him. He uses his family as a pawn in his own vindictive game. And he he says, I'm going to betroth them. I'm going to get her excited because she wants to marry David. So I'm going to offer David the chance to marry her. She's going to start making wedding preparations. And if things go just right, he'll die before the wedding. So David is quite humble when he gets the first offer to marry Saul's daughter. And I don't know if it's humility or just the reality that this guy's tried to kill me a few times. I don't know that he'll make a great father-in-law. But in any event... He says, yeah, I'd like to marry her. And so David and his men go. And rather than simply uh, fulfilling Saul's plan and dying at the hands of Philistines, he brings back proof of not only 100, but 200 Philistine soldiers that he has slain. And Saul hates him all the more for it. Saul's jealousy against him is kindled every time David is faithful to God. And every time God protects and gives David success. Saul hates him all the more because the root of his frustration is that God had rejected him because of his sin and was with David. So David, on his wedding day, enters into a strange family. 
But he remains with Saul for a season. And, and things are going to continue to get more difficult. You'll find that Saul is continually against him and views David as an enemy. And so his desire is to destroy David. Eventually, things become such that David has to flee and he goes on the run. And for a period of time, David will be an, an outlaw, a fugitive from justice, running from the king of his country. Bible scholars debate how long this was. It's somewhere between four to ten years, depending on who you read. But it's a lengthy period of time where David and a handful of men who are very close to him evade Saul day in and day out. Because Saul is enraged and will not give up his jealous war against David. So in the midst of that, you'll find several times where, where Saul is pursuing David. And I want to show you Two instances while David's on the run where he has an opportunity to put an end to this issue with Saul. And I want us to see how he responds because I think it's going to be quite insightful to how you and I are to live our daily lives here and now. And so I want you to go with me in 1 Samuel chapter 24 verse 1. Saul's been away fighting the Philistines and he hears word of where David is. And so he's going to go in an effort to kill David and his men in verse 24, chapter 24, verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, and there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hands, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And afterward David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of the men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day, your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. And I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. So I I want to set the stage. Saul has been on a campaign against the Philistines, and that's come to an end. He's returning home, and he takes a select number of men from his army. The scriptures say that he had 3,000 chosen men. So it's not just 3,000 men, it's 3,000 select men that are his best fighting men. And they go in search of David and his band of brothers. Now the interesting thing with David and his group is it's not a big group. We don't know the exact number. Later you'll see a list of David's mighty men and they're quite exceptional, but there's not a lot of them. 
We do know it's a small group because they all fit in the same cave. It's not an army of 3,000 people. So he brings this great army of his best men in search of David. And somewhere on the way, Saul slips up into the cave to go to the restroom in privacy. David and his men are hiding in the cave. And as Saul relieves himself, David sneaks up behind him and with his knife cuts off a section of Saul's robe. David's men want to kill him. God has given him to you. This is your chance. This man has tried to kill you on numerous occasions. He's brought an army out against you. Let's end this today. God's given him into your hand. And David says, look, God will judge Saul. I will not touch him. God has made him king. This is my king. Even though David's been anointed king, David isn't going to harm Saul because Saul is the king over Israel. And he doesn't want to do that against God's man that he had made king. So Saul leaves the cave. David calls out to him and exposes the whole thing. David shows him, I could have had you and I didn't. You keep listening to people tell you I want to kill you. I obviously don't want to kill you because if I could, if I did, you'd be dead. This is the end of it. And I want you to see how Saul responds to this reality when he discovers that David had him and let him go in verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So, the, so may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hands. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore to Saul. Then Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. Now I want you to see Saul's response because it's mind-boggling. On the one hand, Saul admires David. And Saul weeps because of who he is. And this is the thing I think is interesting about Saul and David. I think if you took these two men and you stripped away all the circumstances, it was just two men, that they would enjoy one. I think Saul would really like David on his own. Without any of the circumstances, without any of the need to protect his power. There are things about David that Saul obviously admires and values. And even in the midst of this, you know, he's on the hunt to kill him. He refers to him as his son. There's, there's this sense that, that, that if everything was just different, that things might be okay between them. But they're not. Because here's the reality. Saul cares about his power and glory more than anything else. And he doesn't care who he has to destroy to hang on to that. Because relationships don't exist in a vacuum. They exist in the midst of all sorts of real things. And Saul cannot let go of his power. And in the midst of this, when he sees David and he understands David's mercy before him, you see what is confirmed to him is that God is with you and you're going to be king. Which is why he goes home and David and his men return to their stronghold. 
Things aren't resolved. Otherwise, David and his men go home because we can't resolve this issue. The issue is what it is. Saul has been rejected as king and David will become king. And nothing is going to change that. So Saul's disposition towards David, David will never get better. He intends to kill him. And he will try to. And he will go after him. And, and what he asked David to do is to swear an oath that his family will not be cut off. And if you look embedded into that, it's not a request for mercy for his sons more than it is a desire that his name and legacy live on. Because he doesn't just say, hey, spare the lives of my sons when you become king. Because normal practice is for the, the new dynasty to wipe out all possible claims to the throne so that there's no fighting and civil war. He doesn't just ask for that. He says, I want you to spare, to not cut off my line or my name. Saul's concerned with his own legacy, with his own honor and glory. And he can't be reasoned with because it isn't reasonable. Now, this isn't the only time that David's going to have a chance to do this. In chapter 26, David's going to have another opportunity to slay Saul at a moment's notice with no fight. Look at verse 6. Then David said to Halimelech, the Hittite, and Joab's brother, Abishai, the son of Zariah. Who will go down with me into the camp of Saul? So I want to pause there. Saul's camp and his army has been pursuing David, and they're, they're camped and set up. David is aware of that, and he's asking who wants to go on a little recon mission with him into the camp of Saul. And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. So, so here's what Abishai says. He said, look, you don't even have to get your hands dirty. The spear's right here. You know, remember the one that, that he threw at you a few times? It's right there. You say the word and I'll run it through. It, it'll be easy. It'll be quick. I don't think anybody even wake up. It's a tempting reality if the man's been seeking to kill you for years. But I want you to see what David says in response in verse 9. David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him or his day will come to die or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. And no man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake. For they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Now, David's going to again confront Saul with the reality that he could have killed him. But I want you to note something about David. David has over and over again the opportunity to kill Saul. And he won't do it because he's following God's instruction to him. And I want to kind of dig into why that is, because I think when we get beyond this story of the particulars that happened to them, we're going to see David living out some things that I think are important realities for us to understand and employ if we want to faithfully follow Jesus and represent him well to the world around us. And I want to give you the first thing that David knows clearly is that revenge belongs to God. Vengeance belongs to God alone. And David refuses to take it. 
See, God has given into the hands of the government that he has established the right and ability to execute justice. So when one person commits a crime against another, that person is then apprehended. The evidence against them is weighed by a jury. They're convicted and then they're sentenced. And we call that justice. It's justice when one person commits a crime against another. They are convicted based on the evidence and they go through appropriate punishment, having gone through all the due process required to execute justice. That's justice. Now, when someone harms me and I retaliate, that's not justice. That's revenge. And those are different things. David says, I'm not going to take revenge. That kind of judgment belongs to God alone. David does not have the ability to execute justice because he is not yet king. Saul is king. If David were king, he could address these matters because he would have the authority from God to do it. But he doesn't. And David says, I'm not going to get into the business of vengeance. That's not mine. More than that, he says, God has forbid that I should touch him in this way, and I'm going to be faithful to the Lord. And I want you to see in Romans chapter 12, the instruction isn't just an example from David, it is a command from us, to us. In Romans chapter 12, verse, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, this idea that we don't take vengeance is built into something significant about how we all think about things. Here's here's the reality. When someone has harmed me, when someone has wronged me or those that I love, I want instant, immediate swift justice. That's what I want. Someone has wronged me in some way. I want justice and I want to be vindicated and I want it now. But when I have wronged someone else, that is the last thing I want. When I am the one who has harmed someone, I don't want immediate justice. I want mercy. And the reality is all of us have harmed people. The scriptures are plain in this is that that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. And none of us want to stand before God demanding justice. I promise. None of us want to stand before God and go, I don't I don't think I'm getting a fair shake here because the appropriate judgment from God for our sin against him is an eternity in judgment apart from his presence, experiencing agonizing conscious torment because of our sin, because we have sinned infinitely against the good and holy God. None of us want justice. We want mercy. And God is rich in mercy. And so the scriptures can tell us, don't take vengeance because you don't want that, I promise. You don't want immediate payback for what you've done. You want mercy. And as people who have received mercy because Jesus died for our sins, we're to be people who extend mercy. That's why the scriptures in Micah are going to say that what does the Lord require of you? But to live justly and to love mercy. Love it. Not just that we extend it occasionally, begrudgingly, but we delight in mercy and we extend it to other people because we've received it. So David understands revenge isn't my business. That's God's. And I'm going to entrust myself into God's hands and he will vindicate me at the right time according to his timing. I'm not going to take it into my hands. I'm going to trust him. Not human means, not my own strength, not my own military might. I'm going to trust God. And so David says, God is anointing me to be king. I'll be king the day he makes me king and not a day sooner. 
If God is anointed that I should be king, Saul can't touch me. I don't need to kill him. He can't harm me. I'll trust God. And a lot of times our desire to seek justice or vengeance on our own is a reality we don't trust God to take care of it in the appropriate way. We think we'll handle it. Trust him. David does. He says revenge belongs to God. The second thing I want you to see about David, and this is really difficult for us as American Christians to wrap our minds around, but there are things that we have the right to do that are not right to do. The things we have the right to do that are not right to do. What what do we mean by that? Just because I could make a reasonable argument to other men that my actions were justified does not mean I stand with a clear conscience before God. I want to give you a, a story that I think illustrates this quite well. And I want you to see the transformative power of restraining yourselves. Uh, in my time in corporate America, we, we, we had this instance in a meeting, a large meeting with a number of people in management and then our senior uh, leaders that we worked for. And, and there was an instance where one of the guys who was a peer of mine was incredibly disrespectful and insubordinate in a real public way to our boss. And our boss's boss who was in the room. It was ugly. Now, all of us were kind of like, well, that guy's done, right? In fact, you know, at that moment in my career and, and, and kind of where I was at maturity, if someone on my team had done that, they, they wouldn't have gotten out of the meeting with the job. So I'm kind of halfway expecting that, that, we, that we pick up the phone and we contact asset, asset management, which is security, and we say, uh, um, so-and-so has been let go. Uh, meet them at their office and help them get their things. That's what I would have done. But it's not what happened. Uh, our boss who was in the room just quietly addressed it to move on. Obviously, privately addressed it with that person. I, I don't know what he said. It was private. I do know the next time we had a, the whole market together, that was a different guy in the room. I know that, that he was humble. He was remorseful, repentant, publicly owned what he had done and asked everyone to forgive him and to keep working with him. And for the last year that I worked there, on the team, it was a different guy. Now, now, our bosses had the right to fire him. HR wouldn't have had any problem with it, wouldn't have had any lawsuits. It's pretty cut and dry. They chose not to. And I don't think it was an act of weakness. I think it was an act of strength. Because here was a guy who obviously needed some help in his career, who was going to lose an opportunity. His family was going to be hurt because of it. And, and we had these couple guys, my boss and his boss, that were just good men and wanted to help a guy. And felt like they could process through that and salvage the relationship and he could be fruitful in the company. They had the right to can him at that moment. But decided there was a better opportunity if they showed mercy. And there are going to be times like that where you're going to have the right to do things. It's just not the right thing to do. And we've got to get above simply demanding justice and get to where we love mercy so that we can extend it. And this is where this all comes together and why it becomes so important is that when we live like that, we start to look a lot like Jesus. Not perfectly, but a lot like Jesus. I want you to look at Philippians chapter 2 with me. Philippians chapter 2 tells us the story of Jesus leaving heaven to come to earth. Jesus who eternally exists and equal with the Father, worshipped and adored by angels for eons. Leaves his crown and throne to come in human form. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, tells us, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I want you to picture this. Jesus, worshipped by angels in heaven for eternity past, chooses to take on human form and be born a baby. With all of our limitations and weaknesses. And he doesn't come and join a part of a fashionable family at a really exciting moment in history with all sorts of comforts. No. He's born into the one of the fiercest, most difficult moments in the history of the world into this family in the backwoods of the Roman Empire that's a part of the working poor. And he does that. Even though he has a right, he has a right to be worshipped constantly. He doesn't just do that. He, he, he lives a life serving people who have rejected him. And he goes to the cross and is nailed there by men. He is there to save. And they mock and scorn him as they murder him. And, and Jesus does nothing. Isaiah looks forward to this moment in Isaiah 53. He says, as the sheep is silent before the shearers, so he opened not his mouth. Men, when they were crucified, would yell, scream, shout insults at people. If they had the capacity, they would have done something about it. Jesus could have called down angels from heaven to destroy everyone who had apprehended him and he did nothing. Nothing. He would have been within his rights to have stopped it. Jesus wasn't on the cross because he was guilty. There's a man with no sin, but he was carrying our guilt. And the scriptures say that he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus cared little for his rights and had infinite love for us. So he laid them down, not considering what was good for him, but was good for others. And he laid it down. He says, when you begin to live that way, you look like Jesus. And so think about this. Jesus doesn't call down the angels. He's hung to the cross. And what's his prayer? Not father, deliver me, send the angels to destroy them. The prayer is, father, would you forgive them? Because they don't know what they're doing. When we endure mistreatment, and injustice, and respond with mercy, we look like Jesus. And I want you to see a practical example this week of this. Uh, Our brothers and sisters in Christ in South Carolina, who gathered today with no pastor because their shepherd had been killed, who gathered today having lost eight other people in their church, you know how they responded? They responded with messages of forgiveness to the man who perpetrated these acts against them, and gathered to pray for his repentance and salvation. I want you to think about that. That is not the way the world responds to these things. And when the church does, when men and women who follow Jesus look at and take upon themselves hardship and mistreatment and respond with mercy and grace, even in the midst of mistreatment, even in the midst of injustice, there's a powerful testimony of the reality of who Jesus is. Because that is unexplainable in human terms. That is obviously and plainly a work of the Spirit of God. And you and I, when we endure mistreatment at that moment, have one of the most significant opportunities of our lives 
to represent Christ to the world around us. To demonstrate what it is to follow Jesus. And the scriptures say that the way we love will be the most powerful testimony of the reality that Jesus is the Son of God. So if you endure hardship, if you're going through one of those moments right now where someone has mistreated you, I want you to understand, I'm not telling you to leave yourself open, be a doormat. I'm saying you be gracious. Don't look for vengeance. Don't take things into your hands. Hope for the best. Pray for the best. Because at that moment, God could do great and mighty things. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a good and loving God. We thank you that you're a God who fights for us. And Lord, I pray that in the midst of that, in the recognition of that, that you would enable us to lay down our weapons. Father, I thank you for the example of our brothers and sisters at Emmanuel AMA Church and how they have responded in grace to this violence. Father, I pray that you'll do a great work of redemption through that. And I pray that 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 example, the example of David and the life of Jesus would inspire us to live in that way so that people would see the power of what the Spirit is doing and be drawn near to Jesus. We pray that as we worship you today, that you would move in our hearts and you'd strengthen us to live as Christ had lived and to trust in what he's done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.